Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel chapter 17, 17th chapter of Ezekiel. We are finally out, number one, finally out of Ezekiel 16, and it's finally my joy to be back in the pulpit, having been gone for uh, two Sundays and uh, two, yeah, something like that, um, and, uh, and getting to be back now and to preach again. Um, I miss it a great deal when I have to be out, and so I'm glad to be back and thankful for those uh, who covered it in my absence. Thank you, Neil. Uh, for uh, preaching faithfully to us and, and uh, for me and for us. And I, I know that um, even though I had to watch it at home, which I hate, I, uh, I learned a lot and I appreciated it. Thank you, brother. Ezekiel chapter 17. We have been in a sermon series on Ezekiel for some time now. And um, this 17th chapter has reminded me of some things, and that's where I'm going to start, that... Um, that I believe that every text in the Bible is worth preaching, even the list of names. Every text in the Bible is worth preaching, but not every text in the Bible fits cleanly and nicely into what we might call the modern sermon template, which uh, if you are full of, uh, full of mercy and kindness is about 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you, if you have a lot more confidence and you've been in the saddle for many more years, you can extend to 45, even an hour, on and on it goes as far as the Spirit will take you. Here's what I'm trying to say, that Ezekiel 17 doesn't fit real nicely and cleanly into kind of what I would call your standard sermon template. About half of it is a parable, and then the other half is an explanation of the parable Uh, really getting us to the point where you can't cover one part without covering at least most of the chapter. I found plenty to preach on, and in your bulletin, it has us going to, I believe, the end of the chapter, verse 24. We're actually just going to go to verse 21 and save those last uh, three verses uh, for next Sunday. But if you will, uh, go to Ezekiel chapter 17. The Lord gives His people another story, another parable. The word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, a great eagle with giant wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade, set it in a city of merchants. Then he took the seed of the land, planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, that is the, the eagle, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. There was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him, shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, that is God telling Ezekiel, say to the people, say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull it up by its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not 
utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. The chief men of the land he'd taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him. He shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he's committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. If you'll return in your Bible to verse 2. God telling Ezekiel to tell the people a riddle and to tell them a parable. Basically, those two words there, riddle and parable. Riddle meaning it's going to be a bit mysterious. Parable meaning it's going to be a story that I'm going to explain the meaning to. Why is God telling riddles? If you notice, I mean, we just spent like six Sundays in chapter 16 because it took us a while to get through all that. That was its own really long parable, and you perhaps might have heard some echoes. That's intentional. Why does God speak in parables? He does it here. He does it in the other prophetic books as well. Jesus himself does it during his ministry several times. The short answer would be because images have a tendency to stick. The second reason is because the meaning and that one grasps the meaning is more important than the method. I think in our culture, in our present moment, we tend to privilege um, how you want to, just, just telling it like it is, sort of saying it straightforwardly. And we, culturally speaking, because of kind of how we've been raised and how we've grown up, we have a tendency that when somebody communicates in parables and stories, we get really suspicious that they're trying to hide something. And hey, sometimes they are. Uh, but we have, a, we have a tendency to be more, specific, more suspicious of this form, I think. Third, we also live in an era where we prize free speech. And so it can be harder, perhaps, for us to understand why someone might speak about something that's really important somewhat indirectly, uh, to speak in pictures rather than direct statements. I mean, if you think about it, when you think about the reasons why Jesus said he used parables, do you remember? He said, basically, the, 
the, the meaning and intent of the parable would be heard by his sheep and not heard by others. And so God, through Ezekiel, gives people in Jerusalem this riddle. Now remember what we just saw in the last chapter. It's been a little while, so I'm just going to reacquaint you with it. God gave them a parable basically saying, I found you when you were as good as dead, gave you new life, and became your husband, speaking to Jerusalem like, uh, like one speaks to his wife. And he basically says, you, you betrayed me. You ran after these other idols of these other nations and these other gods. So he gives this riddle and he says, an eagle shows up. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, a, a great eagle. Now listen to this because it matters. It, it sounds kind of excessive and that's, that's for a reason. A great eagle with great wings and long pinions and rich in plumage. That's a fun word, right? Many colors came to Lebanon. All right. So it, it's a big eagle and it's really pretty. Okay. Came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. So he comes to Lebanon, this eagle does, and he breaks off the top part of this tree and carries it to a land of trade, we read, and sets it in a city of merchants. Now, at this point in Ezekiel, if you don't know that city of merchants means Babylon, you haven't been reading it, right? Ezekiel's used that a few times now to refer to Babylon. He places it in a healthy spot. It grows up and it becomes a strong vine. Okay, verse 7 then. Oh, sorry, I forgot about my images. So we have this great big eagle, right, comes along, and then what happens? He goes to the top of this tree, takes a little bit off of this vine, and then brings the vine to a city of merchants, right? The images helped me, so I thought they might help you. Okay, places it in a healthy spot, grows and becomes strong. Now verse 7, another bird shows up. Okay, go ahead to the next one, please. There was another great eagle with great wings, and much plumage. Now, you remember the first one, go back to the, uh, next, yeah, great eagle, great wings, long pinions, I mean, so this one gets this like big, bad, awesome description, right? Go to the next one, and then the second one, great wings, much plumage, we're done, right? Because so, so really communicating right there, this eagle's like a lot less impressive, okay? So go to the next one, please. All right, so the eagle, right, has taken the bit off the top, taken it to the city of merchants. What happens? It grows strong, and then we meet this second eagle, and this vine starts to bend its roots toward the other eagle. So then will it thrive? And the answer is no. It's an image of betrayal, which should probably sound familiar to you. There have been, there's been talk of betrayal for the last few chapters. In other words, it's going to die. Right? Because it's, it's moved, the, the vine has moved in favor of a different bird, somebody else, all right? Go to the next one, please. Behold, it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? That's Babylon coming for Jerusalem. Wither away on the bed where it sprouted, all right? And so then we get to verse 12 where we are told we're going to get an explanation. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? And by the way, just to pause there for a second, the answer among the people of Jerusalem when they heard this is probably. Did they understand? Probably. This, the imagery happening here would be like if you opened up the newspaper 
on the day after, let's just say, imagine, imagine a uh, presidential election and the Republican candidate wins, and you open the paper, and there's this big elephant stepping on a donkey, right? You live in America, you know what's being communicated there by the images. As far as I can tell, uh, scholars seem to be pretty well convinced that this would have been enough information that Jerusalem would have gotten it pretty quick, what was being said here. Tell them, behold, the kings of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took her king and her princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. We've talked about this before. This was the first exile. Ezekiel was in that group that got taken to Babylon, but not everybody got taken to Babylon. Some remained in Jerusalem. Okay? Go to the next one, please. And so, who's the eagle? Right? Well, we are told that the, the great eagle is Babylon. So in other words, if you want to assign it an identity, that's King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So King Nebuchadnezzar comes. He's the great big eagle who's really pretty and really lovely and is really impressive. Okay? King Nebuchadnezzar comes, and what does he do? He plucks up a bit from the cedar tree. Translation, he takes the king of Israel and some of Jerusalem with him and takes them to Babylon. So these would be the kings in Jerusalem. Now, what happens here is a bit weird because, go back one, sorry, not yet. What happens here is a bit weird because at this point in the parable, the vine that's been plucked has two, it stands for two people, actually. One is that King Jehoiachin who gets taken to Babylon. The other one is King Zedekiah who gets, who is, um, who is Jehoiachin's uncle. And, and Nebuchadnezzar basically takes him uh, renames him Zedekiah and says, okay, you're the king now, and you do what I say, okay? So you, you stay here, you take care of Jerusalem, and you do as I say, you do what I tell you to do, you basically belong to me now, okay? And then he goes to Babylon. And the, the vine stands for both of those kings. So Nebuchadnezzar takes the vine to Babylon, either, again, literally taking the king to Babylon, or leaving one behind to, to rule in his stead, you might say. Okay? So, that's, that's kind of laying out the picture of this parable. And so the Lord... Uh, so what happens after that is that they make a covenant. He takes the king's uncle, uh, Nebuchadnezzar does, sets him up as a kind of puppet king, and then he makes a covenant with him. He says, you will give me, basically, your word today that you're going to serve me. They make a covenant. I've, I'm repeating it because it's really really important, okay? Um, let me find the bit where it, it talks about it. I don't have it up there. But so he takes one of the royal offspring, Zedekiah, verse 13, makes a covenant with him, puts him under oath that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. So basically, Zedekiah says to Nebuchadnezzar, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, I got it. He makes a covenant, and they take vows. And Zedekiah breaks his vows. He basically goes over to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and says, can you help me out? Okay, I'm going to stage a rebellion. We're going to do the nice little insurrection thing, and uh, I, can probably, I can probably win if you'll help me. And the Pharaoh in Egypt says, okay. And so the Lord basically asks, is this liar going to thrive? Is this liar going to thrive, is what he asks. He thinks he's really smart, but what happens to liars? They don't thrive. They wither and die, and they're cut off. Now, this is amazing. 
Because there's part of me in this story that wants to rally behind Zedekiah and be like, well, come on, he's, he's taken on Babylon. And the Lord's point is, number one, I hope you heard it, this is for his humility and the humility of Jerusalem, which they more than deserve. Number two, he made a covenant, he made a vow. And what this text brings out, this and many other places in the Bible, is the necessity and the prime importance in God's word and among God's people of keeping your oaths, of doing what you say. And why is that important? Why does what is taking vows, taking oaths, this sort of thing, why is that so important? Well, our God is a God of words, would be one way of putting it, right? If you remember in the, at the start of the Bible in Genesis, the Lord does what? He speaks the universe into existence. Okay, apparently words are really important. And then what does He do? He, he speaks promises to His people, starting with Adam and Eve, right? Even in the midst of the fall and the tragedy of the first sin, the Lord says, I'm going to give you words and promises, and one day a seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So, what, so God speaks the universe into existence, and then he keeps speaking promises to his people, even in the midst of their sin. And then when Jesus comes, John, the apostle John, calls him the Word made flesh. Our God makes promises with words. Here's the thing. He always keeps them. And that's part of what this text is getting across. God is promising that Zedekiah, even though he's on the good, the good team, which right now is, is the idolatrous team, God is promising that Zedekiah will be exposed as a liar and a fool, and that this secret treaty he's trying to make with Egypt is not going to save him. This is a prophecy, and if you're curious, it does pan out exactly like the Lord says. If we go to Second Chronicles, uh, we basically get this story uh, told to us. So Jehoiachin, 18 years old, he becomes king, reigns Three months, ten days. And he does what is evil. And in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar comes and brings him to Babylon with precious vessels of the house of Yahweh and made his brother, I said uncle, didn't I? Brother, sorry, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old. He begins to reign. He reigns 11 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself exactly what Ezekiel said. Before Jeremiah the prophet, who was contemporary at the time, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So he's not listening to God. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of Yahweh that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people until there was no remedy. So here's, here's the Second Chronicles account saying Ezekiel's prophecy did in fact come to pass. All right? So what then is the great sin that they committed that Zedekiah gets punished for? Go back to verse 16 in our text this morning. 
As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. He despised the oath. That's the problem here. Do you hear how much the Lord hates the breaking of promises? Here's the point. Even with wicked men. I mean, there's part of you that's like, yeah, but he, he made an agreement with a pagan, right? So it like doesn't count, right? Apparently not, dear saints. This is how much the Lord cares about how we keep our word. All right, go on to the next one. Uh, verse 18, I believe. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. God hates it when we break promises. And then the shocker, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised. Wait a minute. No, it wasn't. It was Nebuchadnezzar's. Here's God saying, I'm the offended party when you break your promises. I am the offended party when you break your covenant. I will return it upon his head, the Lord says. You see, the entirety then, why is this important? Why does God place such a prime importance on, I used the word promises a moment ago, which, which is different from a covenant, right? A covenant vow, it has, has a bit of a different kind of intensity than if we say, you know, oh, I'll be there at four, I promise. Um, but this, this idea of a covenant vow, obviously very important to the Lord. The entirety of the Christian faith, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, the entirety of our faith hangs on the trustworthiness of our God. If God is a liar, then we're all ruined and worthless. This is why Bob Vincent loved to so often tell all of you that God can do many things, but God cannot lie. It's like the thing God can't do. He is the truth, so His words must always be true. And this, Christian, is why your words matter so much. This is why we must not be liars. How much does this matter? So much so that God is the offended party even when the pagan gets lied to. There's this amazing bit in Joshua chapter 9. It's one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament where the, where the children of Israel under Joshua's leadership meet this group of people called the Gibeonites. Okay? The Gibeonites. And basically the Gibeonites come to Israel and they lie. You see, God had told the Israelites... Don't make a covenant with any of the Canaanites. And the Gibeonites pretend they're not Canaanites. And they convince Joshua to make a covenant with them so that they'll be protected. Now the Gibeonites do get a measure of punishment for their deception. Uh, they're only allowed to pursue one trade and one vocation. The text says they're, they're made to be cutters of wood and drawers of water. But, but what happens when their, their lie gets exposed, some of the people are like, well, we should kill them. And Joshua says, we can't. We made a covenant with them. We gave them our word. This is serious business. And if we violate our covenants, we place ourselves under God's judgment. And if you want to know how much that matters to God, about 400, 400 years later, okay? So everybody in Joshua 9 is dead. 400 years later in 2 Samuel chapter 21 Everybody in Israel has forgotten about the promises that God made to the Gibeonites. King Saul really starts to resent the fact that these Gibeonites are clogging up his land and he tries to wipe them out. Total genocide. And when David comes to the throne, a famine 
hits the land and people are suffering and David seeks the Lord in prayer and he basically says, Lord, I'm trying to do your will. What is going on? And the Lord says to David, there's a famine in the land because you killed Gibeonites. David says, well, what do we do? And the Lord says, you have to go make atonement. You have to bring justice to all the followers of Saul who did that to the Gibeonites. And so 400 years after this covenant's been made, to the Gibeonites, and almost everybody in Israel has forgotten about it, God has not forgotten His promise. God will never forget about a promise. And that's the hope that you and I have as Christians under the cross, under the blood of Jesus. God never forgets the promises that He makes to you. And so one of the ways that we are called, dear saints, to follow after our covenant-keeping God is to be a people who keep our promises, and especially our covenants and vows. And so if you want to get one thing from this sermon this morning, it's Christians are oath-keepers. Some might remember in the 90s, we had that men's group, the movement called Promise Keepers. That's a pretty good summary of what all of us ought to be. There's also, it might interest you to know, in our, in our Confession of Faith, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 22, is in, they gave an entire chapter just to oaths and vows. Well, that's kind of weird. Like, I get, okay, I get election and, and scripture and adoption and, and predestination and, you know, all, all these different doctrines, justification. I get why those would have their own chapters. Why does oaths and vows get its very own chapter in this explanation of what we confess, because that's how important it is to God. This bit in uh, paragraph 4, an oath is to be taken, go back, sorry, in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation. In other words, let your yes be yes, right? It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance. Although to a man's own hurt, that's Psalm 15, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels or Babylonian kings. Here's the point, okay? So, so what's the first part of that saying? If you make a vow and the vow is to sin, you are released from it, okay? So vows to sin do not count, right? We have examples of that in Scripture, and this is really important, I think, as we see... Um, the, sort of the, the fallout from the sexual revolution uh, and the twisting of the definition of marriage. I think it's going to be very helpful to be able to tell people that, vows, that if you make a vow to sin against the Lord, it's not a binding vow. That's good news. Okay? However, at the same time, the person you promise, sorry, go back, uh, the person to whom you promise, be he a heretic, heretic infidel, Babylonian, Babylonian king, really obnoxious next-door neighbor, a uh, jerk of a sheriff or president or mayor or whatever, doesn't matter, right? There's this moment, one of my favorite movies, probably in, I don't know if my top 10, but definitely my top 20, is uh, The Man in the Iron Mask. Maybe some of you have seen it. But there's this brilliant line where, where one of the musketeers tells D'Artagnan, he says, uh, he says we're, we're going we're gonna to rebel because if a king is evil, if a king is evil, it releases you from your vow. And D'Artagnan replies, a vow is a vow precisely because it cannot be removed. That's a good line. A vow is a vow precisely because it cannot be removed. You can go to the next one now. 
this is the same, same topic. Actually, I just wanted to point out to you that fulfilling your vows is brought out in our catechism as sins forbidden in the third commandment. What's the third commandment, right? Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because when we make light of our vows, we make light of the promises of our God. We are a people who have to keep our promises, keep our vows, because we, we want to reflect the God who never lies. That's the point. So we must not break our covenants. The vows are serious things. When Marissa and I were in uh, premarital counseling, the pastor who, who walked us through that, he said basically the biblical position on vows is don't make them. Because if you do, it's a really big deal. And I think that's brought out in Ezekiel here as well. So Christians, we must not break our covenants. We keep our vows to God. In general, we, and just, just in general and broadly speaking, we, we do what we say. That's, that's Jesus, let, it, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. We understand that vows are really important and they have to be kept. And so we keep our vows with, that happen within the three estates. I don't know if you've heard about this, the three estates. Luther talked about this. The estate of the family, the estate of the church, and the estate of of the state, the, govern, the government, right? And so we keep our vows, like marriage vows, that we make in covenant to one another. Why? Because God's not a liar. We keep our vows that we make to the church in the body of Christ. Why? Because God is not a liar. We keep our vows that we make to the state. Do you make vows to the state? I mean, yeah. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to the president, oh wait, no, sorry. And to the policy, wait, no, that's not it either. And to the republic, some of you get it. Um, right, so we've, we've, made, we've made vows. You've got vows, to, vows within the estate of the family, vows within the estate of the church, vows within the estate of the, the government of the state. Now, maybe when you, when you hear me say that, let me address quickly a few responses, possible responses. Maybe you say, well, I know Christians who have not kept their vows. Yeah, those exist. <laughs> full of sin are we. This is what we sang about in the song, Oh Great God, right? False and full of... No, no I'm quoting a different song. But, but the reason why we had a confession of sin is we know that we fall short. And honestly, if, if you're going to ask me, well, like, can you draw me out a chart what kind of violation equals what kind of action on God? Mm -mm, I, no, that's, that's, between, that's between the oath breaker and the Lord. Or maybe you hear this and you say, well, what if I've taken a vow and I've broken it? What if I've taken a vow and I've broken it? I'm actually, sorry, not to keep you on the edge of your seat, but I jumped ahead in my notes. I'll answer that in just a moment. Or maybe, maybe you have to say, I, I thought of this this morning and scribbled it into my notes quickly. What if you say, hey, pastor, you made me a promise and you didn't keep it. Come talk to me so I can say I'm sorry. Let me just, I just, that just popped into my head this morning. I thought, you know what? If somebody's hearing this sermon and they're thinking, yeah, buddy, I remember when you said such and such to me, that really inhibits the whole authenticity of what I'm trying to say to you, doesn't it? So if, if that's the case, come and talk to me so that I can ask for your forgiveness, and ask what I can do to make it up to you. The reason why this is important is because our God keeps His promises. First, for judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is one of the texts I'm going to close with. And 2 Corinthians, no, is it not there? 
Oh, no, it was a different one. It was the Matthew text. Go ahead and put that one up. Sorry. Um, yeah, from Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. Why? Because our God is a God of words who gives us his words. That's how he reveals himself to us and wants us to keep ours. And so, do you see why it is, makes absolutely perfect sense why on the day of judgment, we would begin with the importance and weight of words. Lord have mercy on us because Facebook and Twitter are probably providing a log for judgment day. We give our amen to God's own promises. Okay? This is how important words are. And then go to the next one, Second Corinthians Chapter 1, so not only does God keep His promises for judgment, He keeps His promises for mercy and grace. We read that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That was in the assurance of pardon this morning. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. We give our amen, our, our that's right, our that is so to God's own promises. So do you see why our words are so important? Because we're the ones who are charged to say yes and amen to these promises that He has sealed for us. The last thing I want to tell you is that there is hope for those who have broken their oaths and their vows. For those who will come to God in repentance, acknowledging their sin. And acknowledging that their sin might have different consequences. That's sort of a case-by-case thing. I mean... Earthly consequences, right? The, the ways that you handle your words can, um, can mean that it's going to take some work to rebuild friendships, for example. But what does God do with traitors? Let me just put it that way. Right? What does God do with traitors? My answer to you is ask Peter. Right? Peter, who denied Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, whose sins were covered by the blood of Jesus, spilled on the cross of Calvary, so that when he fled to the wounded side of his risen Lord in repentance, Jesus restored him. Not only restored him, but equipped him to go and to serve. Go feed my sheep, Peter. Take care of my people. Lead the way. Build the church. And so, with a repentant and restored traitor, I will forevermore remind all my sons and daughters that I take liars and traitors and turn them into heralds and sons. This is what our God does. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. So our Father, we thank you that there is hope. Hope for we who break our word, even as we acknowledge and confess, oh, our words are so weighty. And so, Lord, I pray for this congregation and for all who are here this morning that you would help us in Jesus' name to keep our words, to keep watch over our lips and to grant that more and more we would, we would be a congregation of truth-tellers, a congregation of honest Christians, of Jesus' followers, and in this sense of Jesus' imitators. We need grace and help for this, Lord, so we ask for it now, trusting in your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.